There are those of us who are haunted by our own mortality, for whom the specter of impending death is an ever-present hunter, always close behind, nipping at our heels. Most simply try to elude it, but some are determined to stop running and become hunters themselves. These are their tales. I'm your host, Tybee Diskin, and together we are Chasing Immortality. FM 2030, the father of modern transhumanism. We begin our journey this week in one of the most terrifying places in the world. So terrifying, in fact, that the mere mention of this location is known to strike fear into the heart of even the most seasoned world traveler. We hope that you, our intrepid listeners, aren't faint of heart, because our story starts at the very gates of hell. Scottsdale, Arizona. Gotcha, didn't I? Okay, all right, I'll be honest. There's probably nothing at all terrifying about Scottsdale, Arizona. Located just outside of Phoenix, Scottsdale is a shining example of American suburbia. It features a picturesque view of both the mountains and the surrounding desert, a lovely canal that cuts through downtown, and cacti and desert willows blooming throughout the city. People come for golf tournaments or business trips, but other than that, it's not a destination town. Just your standard issue, albeit pretty, town stuff. Hotels, coffee shops, and other various businesses. So why are we here? Well, nestled in between those standard American business buildings is one very special business. One you could miss if you weren't looking for it. Come with us, if you will, on a tour of the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. 20 minutes from downtown, there stands a slate-colored, nondescript building with a blue awning and a sign that reads simply Alcor when you pull up to park your car. Aside from a few palm trees and shrubs that frame the building, it looks like a plain warehouse. Lucky for us, Alcor regularly hosts tours of their facilities, and so, we enter. The inside of the building is a little flashier than the outside, a mirrored logo, purple and blue walls. The walls are filled with photographs of different people of all races and gender expressions. Some are in black and white, some are full color. All of them are smiling. A man appears to guide the tour. Wearing an expensive blazer with a purposefully unkempt beard, he welcomes the small crowd, shakes hands, and begins to lead everyone through the facility, telling everyone a little bit of what they do here. Over the course of the tour, he leads the group through labs filled with expensive equipment, glossy tables, and plastic dummies to better demonstrate specific procedures. After the laboratories, he leads everyone through another hallway lined with framed headshots of different people before opening a door into what he calls the patient care bay. There's a shrouded window in the center of the room, and the tour guide presses a button. The covering of the window lifts up to reveal a pane of bulletproof glass looking in on a massive room filled with gigantic metal tubes. Now, one might look at these tubes and think, well, that's big enough for a person to fit in. And you would be right. That's exactly what's in them. Human bodies, up to four to a tube, and five if you only store the brains. 181 bodies in total, to be exact. Alcor is a cryonics lab where the wealthy can have their bodies frozen, suspended in time until technology catches up to their ultimate dream, reanimation. You may have heard rumors when you were a kid about how they froze Walt Disney in a place like this. Well, guess what, listeners? He's not here. Sorry. 
But others are. Frozen in time and liquid nitrogen. Cryonics is the practice of preserving life by pausing the dying process using sub-zero temperatures. It's often confused with cryogenics, which is a branch of physics that deals with how different things behave at sub-zero temperatures. Cryogenics is put to practical use every day in MRI machines, special effects fog, preserving blood and tissue samples in medical environments. Cryogenics is a proven and tested field of science with many uses. The scientific legitimacy of cryonics is still up for debate, and it has only one purpose— to eventually be able to reanimate the dead. Cryonicists believe that the dying process is not instantaneous. The hope is that by freezing a person as close to their time of death as possible, the patient in question isn't truly dead, but preserved. By storing them in these sub-freezing environments, the tubes, the hope is that science will one day catch up with cryonics and the deceased will be reanimated. Cryonics doesn't believe that death is the end. Rather, it could simply be a pause. Sounds like science fiction, right? Yet that's how most scientists feel, too. Cryonics is regarded with much skepticism from the mainstream scientific community. Countless doctors, biologists, and psychologists who study the dying process don't even acknowledge it as a field of study, claiming that at best it's a childlike or naive view of a natural and undeniable process, and at worst it's a horrific end-of-life scam preying on the vulnerable and their families. It's safe to say that cryonics is an incredibly controversial branch of science, but that's not to say that it doesn't have its fans. One of the most famous of which is right here at Alcor. His picture is hanging on the wall, along with other snapshots of smiling patients, all of whom have been cryonically preserved here at Alcor. The headshot that we'll zoom in on today is that of a handsome Iranian-American man with strong features and excited eyes, a man who believed so deeply in this process that his body now calls this facility home. Everyone... I'd like you to meet FM2030. You heard me right. FM2030 is his name. I know FM2030 sounds like a radio station that only plays Muzak and one Jimmy Buffett song on loop, but his peculiar name had a very specific purpose. This man was, and continues to be, hailed as the father of modern transhumanism. We'll be using that word a lot. Transhumanism. You might have heard it in passing if you spent time with, oh, say, a lot of Elon Musk fans. But what does it actually mean? Transhumanism is the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations using science and technology. Anything that could possibly give human beings a leg up, whether it's manipulating genetics, utilizing bioengineering, or growing completely new organs from stem cells, transhumanists are the first in line to fund, publicize, and, if possible, use these technologies on themselves. If you're a transhumanist, you have faith that society's technological advancements will eventually help us prevent everything from war, to government corruption, to even death itself. The entire theory is based on the idea that things will be better in the future. Not only that, but we can invest in technologies right here and right now that could result in us being able to build a utopia. If we only shift our priorities, transhumanists believe, we could prevent aging, protect the environment, and eliminate the need for death. Transhumanism is a typically optimistic brand of philosophy, and FM2030 was a particularly optimistic guy. He wasn't always like that, though. He didn't always have such a futuristic name, either. Long before he became a writer, teacher, and poster boy for transhumanism, FM was born in Brussels, Belgium in 1930. His original name, and please forgive my less-than-graceful pronunciation, was Feridun M. Esfandiri. 
His education about the truths of the world began very young. His father, A. H. Sadeh Isfandiari, was an Iranian diplomat who over the course of his 40-year career would witness the rule of two shahs, the Soviet invasion of Iran in World War II, and the struggle that restored Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi to the throne in 1953, which meant that FM was experiencing all of it. As a diplomat's son, FM spent his childhood traveling between Europe, Afghanistan, Iran, and India, always with his eyes and ears open to the experiences and trials of whatever environment he found himself in. His early schooling was split between Iran and England, and his secondary education took place at a Jesuit school in Jerusalem. He didn't particularly care for school as a child, but he did enjoy sports. He was so talented an athlete that he went on to represent Iran in the 1948 Olympics as a player for their basketball team. He came around on his distaste for school enough to come to the United States for college, starting at UC Berkeley before transferring to UCLA, where he graduated in 1952. His worldliness was something that was always present in his teachings and career. Inspired by his father's diplomatic work, he served on the brand new United Nations Conciliation Commission for Palestine after he graduated, where he worked with other diplomats to mediate the Arab-Israeli conflict. His nomadic childhood and experiences with the United Nations would greatly influence his idea of a future dominated by blurred identities and heritage. FM believed that in the future, where we came from or how we identified would matter less and less. FM left the United Nations in 1954, after just two years, to pursue a career in fiction writing. His first-hand observation of worldwide traumas made for dark and fatalistic storytelling. For example, Identity Card, one of his early works published under his original name, is a tragedy masked as a comedy about a Middle Eastern man going to unbelievable lengths to obtain a card that will allow him to safely leave Iran. It's a tale of consequences and spotlights hard realities of Iranian life, mocking what he felt were the social tyrannies of the Middle East and crafting an existential critique of Iran. It was clear to anyone who read it that FM was suffering from his own loss of identity and a feeling of helplessness about his place in the world. In all, he would publish three books between 1959 and 1966, as well as countless reviews and essays for The New York Times, The Nation, Saturday Review, and The Village Voice. Nearly all of his work dealt with feeling unmoored in the present, how he felt the constant struggle for identity against the backdrop of the political, religious, and social chaos of the 20th century. During these years, FM was splitting his time between New York, L.A., Paris, and Tehran. Through his travels, he was able to witness firsthand the protest movement of the 1960s, watching the way that everyday citizens were speaking out against government corruption, racism, sexism, and flawed systems worldwide, lit a new spark within him and his writings. He'd always felt like a man without a country, but he was now starting to believe that humanity transcended borders. The tone of his writings changed as he threw himself headfirst into the turbulent movements of the 1960s. He began to write and speak publicly about his belief that if we all came together as one society without the limitations of nationality, heritage, politics, or other tribalistic defining factors— we could create a universal dialogue where prejudices would melt away. Through the worldwide social uproar of the 60s, FM saw the opportunity for a better, kinder, more advanced future, and his writings reflected that. After all, if we could land on the moon, why couldn't we completely reconstruct the government or redraw the map of the Earth? By the early 1970s, FM had become a full-blown transhumanist. This way of thinking completely turned the tables for FM. 
All of the societal critiques that existed in his earlier writings now seem to have an answer. They could be solved by building a new future. FM 2030 saw transhumanism as a way to save humanity. He believed that if we collectively invested in technological advances, humans could prevent the painful realities of life he'd seen in his travels around the world. And so, in the interest of practicing what he preached, he legally changed his name to FM 2030 in the mid-1970s. He did so for two compelling reasons, the first being that the year 2030 would mark his 100th birthday. In a 1989 interview on Larry King, he's quoted as saying, If you're around in the year 2010, there's a good chance that you'll be around in the year 2030. If you're around in the year 2030, there's an excellent chance that you can experience immortality. King raised questions about whether or not people could live for 150 years or more, and FM's response was that 150 years was nothing. Immortality would be in our grasp soon enough. Why shoot so low when you could live forever? The second reason he adopted the name change was to better prepare himself for what he believed naming practices would be like in the future. He said, It is a name without gender, a name without heritage, a name without a country. FM believed that future humans wouldn't feel called to define themselves by such trivial and isolating characteristics. He said that this was a name that made it clear he had no age. He was born and reborn each day, and this made him ageless. It sounds like it was also around this time that his edible kicked in. Those things can be so unpredictable, man. The name change wasn't the only way that he attempted to prepare himself for the future. He took his transhumanism tour on the road. He would routinely speak wherever he could about the virtues of technology and what we as a society should be working toward in order to prepare ourselves for the future and therefore immortality. Preparing for immortality was always at the forefront of all of his teachings, and he had some very specific instructions for anyone who was interested. First of all, to prepare for the future, a person had to be as teleconnected as possible. Technology was what would ultimately save the human race, so he recommended that people make their homes and lifestyles as high-tech as possible. He believed that great access to technology could give engineers and medical professionals the tools they needed to develop cures for long-suffered afflictions and create new forms of connectedness. He was also a devoted vegetarian, saying that he never ate anything that had a mother. FM's belief was that the rise of vegetarianism, veganism, and other diets based on nonviolence were important proof of a societal consciousness, and that in order for humanity to become a collective, we needed to update the sacredness of life to include all life, not just that of the human race. So right about now, you might be thinking, Okay, Tybee, I've got six devices charging as we speak, and I've been vegetarian on and off since 2015. Am I immortal? Well, not exactly. While some of FM's teachings were fairly simple, like don't eat meat, get rid of dial-up, many of the things he predicted were downright revolutionary for their time. For example, FM 2030 didn't believe in the nuclear family. He claimed that as time went on, we would move beyond family units. He cited the evolution of our language as proof of this. In his interviews, he would point out that as a culture, our descriptions were becoming less rooted in judgments. He said, We no longer say broken home. We say single-parent household. We don't say spinster or bachelor. You say singles. He said that using language like this was not only more accurate, but also less rooted in harmful cultural connotations that we would need to shed if we were to move forward. And you know, I don't disagree. FM also discussed how relationships in the near future would become more fluid, as would sexuality and gender identity. It would no longer be about simple procreation, but pleasure, 
and sexual expression. People could maintain romantic relationships with people across the globe, and eventually people would spread out across the galaxy, making homes on other planets. Lends new meaning to a lover in every port. This was far from his only radical opinion. FM believed not only that the government was deeply flawed, but that world leaders as a whole were completely obsolete. He coined the phrase upwing politics and went forth to identify himself as an upwinger. Now what's an upwinger, you ask? FM defined it as anyone who believed in progress, specifically technological and societal progress, and looking towards the future. He pointed out in several interviews that the big social movements of his time, the youth movement, the feminist movement, civil rights, were all led by people, not by their governments. We would need to move away from these heads of state if we truly wish to ready ourselves for the future. Again, this is sounding pretty level-headed and cool, but hang tight, there's a bit of a downturn on the horizon. FM 2030 defined the opposite of his upminded thinking as downminded thinking. A downwinger in politics was someone who was caught up in the past, looking for answers that they would simply never find. The need for the two-party political system would wash away with all of the other myopic social codes that we use to define ourselves. Heritage? No thank you. Government? Gross. Borders? Who needs them? What we needed to move into the glorious future was upwingers, who believed in a global society. According to FM, the past wasn't something that served the greater good. Too many mistakes had already been made. We all came from the ancestors who swung from trees, he told Larry King. It matters not where we came from, it matters where we are going. End quote. The past? I don't know her. Now, all of these big ideas are a lot to be conscious of, especially every day. How are you supposed to remember, let alone wrap your brain around, all of these ideas and topics, the enormous checklist of what you're supposed to do in order to achieve immortality and fit in in our new and cosmic future? How do we keep everything straight? Don't you worry. He wrote it down. When FM wasn't traveling the world, consulting for major corporations, or preaching the word of transhumanism, 2030's real work was his books. Not his moody early fiction works, but rather his slew of nonfiction pieces expressing the importance of forward thinking and being teleconnected. He continued to work as a consultant for major companies and submit to major publications while he turned out book after book. Telespheres, Optimism One, The Emerging Radicalism, Upwingers, and perhaps his most famous, Are You a Transhuman? Which was actually the original lyric to that song by The Killers, but Brandon Flowers was anti-cryonics, so they ditched it. Are You a Transhuman? is truly a book unlike any other. Even calling it a book doesn't quite seem to fit. It isn't so much a work of writing as it is a series of quizzes designed for the reader to partake in and consistently refer back to. Now, I'm sure everyone here has either seen or taken some BuzzFeed quiz that tells them what Game of Thrones character they are based on their favorite Taylor Swift song or linked your Myers-Briggs to your Zodiac sign or whatever. Are You a Transhuman is nothing like that. Throughout the 160-page manuscript, FM lays out a series of tests for the reader that are oddly specific and personal. Tests like... How family-oriented are you? How power-oriented are you? How affluent are you? There are 25 separate assessments with accompanying answer banks to sway you toward more futuristic living. It culminates with the quiz, How Transhuman Are You? An 11-question test with questions like, Does your brain contain a pacemaker or other electrodes? And have you undergone major bodily reconstruction? You're supposed to take all 25 quizzes and total your score. If you score above 700 points, you're thought to be right on track ready to become immortal the moment technology has caught up with you. If you score below 700 points, 
FM has lots of advice for you. I'll point out that some of the things he suggests aren't inherently ludicrous. Exercise regularly, don't smoke, drink in moderation. He even advises that you have plenty of leisure and fun because stress and burnout of a working life can wreak havoc on your life expectancy. He says that quality of life is directly related to extension of life, which has actually been proven thanks to longevity studies conducted by respected institutions such as Harvard and National Geographic. The problem is that FM doesn't stop there. He claims that depression and anxiety will disappear when immortality is possible because, quote, these feelings only come from awareness or suppressed awareness of our own mortality. He preaches against marriage and long-term commitments, claiming that long-term commitment to anything is nonsensical on an immortal timeline. He says that instead of calling someone your spouse, girlfriend, or boyfriend, you should refer to them as your, quote, friend lover, which is somehow a billion times worse than the phrase friends with benefits. He also says that age is a meaningless thing to keep track of, especially when we're able to reconstruct body parts whenever we need them. How old am I? He asks, and are you a transhuman? He continues, what does that mean? My breasts are 12 years old. My right hip is nine. My heart valves were installed five years ago. My new face is only two years old. Imagine the monkey wrench this throws into astrological readings, he muses. What is your sign? Well, my nose is a Gemini. My penile implant is a Taurus. My electronic bladder is a Libra. End quote. You know, I swear I've seen a dating app profile with a bio exactly like that. But I digress. Some of his theories are rooted in sense, but very little of it is rooted in science. As you read his works, the oddities sneak up on you. In the same sentence, FM can go from sounding like a respected philosopher to a street corner banshee with a sign that reads, The end is nigh. For example, after each and every quiz, there's a diatribe from him about the importance of the trait he just asked you to assess, and many of these postscripts are surprisingly aggressive, attacking scientific or evolutionary habits as weaknesses and flaws to be corrected. There is no aging gracefully, he touts. Aging in itself is graceless. Death is the ultimate indignity. He curses people who give up to death and scoffs at human emotions of pain, worry, and depression. According to him, all of these things disappear when you remove the idea of death. That the world wasn't screaming to high heaven about increasing longevity baffled him. You know that downturn I mentioned earlier? Welcome, it's right here. FM refers to emotions as low-grade intelligence, mocking those who indulge in them. There is nothing mystical or spiritual about love, he says. Make no mistake about it. Love is pragmatic, calculating, self-serving. He has a very uncomfortable paragraph after the how affluent are you assessment where he lists the reasons why the poor cannot be progressive. He has several pages of mocking completely normal rituals, claiming that they are narcissistic hangovers from our tribal ancestors. In one particularly colorful turn of phrase, he says, weddings would be more honest if the bride and groom peed on each other to establish their territory. Wow. This would be a good time to bring up that FM 2030 this person who saw himself as a beacon of hope for the future, was not without his critics. Many accused him of being a two-bit cult leader, promising immortality in a way that reflected other harmful religions. Other scientists and economists have made the excellent point that FM's optimism seems to be extreme to the point of insensitivity. Despite his futuristic hope and advice, nothing in any of his books accounts for racism, classism, or other societal barriers that could get in the way of a person being able to live a life which results in immortality. 
Not to mention how expensive life extension can be, making the capitalism aspect of regeneration an uncomfortable conversation. Affluence is progressive, he writes in Are You a Transhuman, without a single note about skyrocketing wealth disparity or the death of the middle class. Get rich so you can live forever, he preaches. He just doesn't seem to give credence to the societal barriers people face to building wealth. While there are some glaring blind spots, he does offer some suggestions. For instance, he encourages others to pool their resources together communally. He encourages people with less funds to create a market of shared affluence. If you want to take a break from work, arrange with two or more of your friends to support each other on a rotating basis. If you can't get a nice house, just make some friends and pool your resources. He says, if you make a good income but can't afford a helicopter, share one. Thanks. Though some of his critics say that the helicopter metaphor is inherently privileged, the mutual aid and community care aspect of FM's advice is something we see a lot more of today. And then there are the scientists who point out that the very idea of immortality is so far-fetched that it doesn't even qualify as science, as much as it does science fiction. Critics of FM pointed out that while technology was rapidly advancing, that in no way meant that eternal life was now suddenly on the table for anyone, let alone everyone. After all, Are You Transhuman was published in 1989. By that point, chemotherapy treatment was barely 20 years old. We had just begun to make prosthetic limbs out of plastics instead of wood and leather. We were still in the trenches of the battle with AIDS with no end in sight. Maybe let's cure some mortal problems before we deal with immortal ones, okay? Despite his critics, FM was hailed in certain circles as a genius. Omni magazine called him a true visionary and daringly original. And New Age magazine said of him that FM has the transcendental presence of a master. Even the Washington Post said he was a hailstorm of ideas. Regardless of whether a person thought FM was a prophet or a profiteer, it cannot be denied that he believed deeply in his work. I am a 21st century person who was accidentally launched into the 20th, he said of himself. I have a deep nostalgia for the future. Also, he did straight up predict the future a few times. During his lifetime, he foretold the popularization of telecommuting, online banking, and electronic marketing. He correctly predicted that technology would make way for a type of globalization that the world has never seen before. He even predicted 3D printing, claiming that one day a Santa Claus machine would make it possible to render tangible objects out of nothing. I would love to have a really great joke about the Santa Claus machine, but honestly, it's a good name. I'm not even mad. One of the quizzes in his book refers to the importance of being information rich because FM said that in the future, everyone would have access to endless information from multiple sources at all times. He was also correct that certain words would phase out of our lexicons in favor of less derogatory ones. He had a couple of solid points. Though he did also say in one of his books that by 2020 we'd be able to turn the sun on and off at our will. So, you know, take any of his genius with a grain of salt. Even in the face of his controversy, though, FM 2030 did leave an impact an attempt at generating hope in the face of grisly truths, and a list of predictions that did, fascinatingly, come true. But there was one thing that he never could have foretold, his own death. FM died of pancreatic cancer in late 2000, 30 years shy of his 100th birthday, and the year he believed that we'd achieve immortality for the human race. His goal was still so far out of reach, and his followers and fans worried. After all, what do you do when the mascot of living forever dies before your eyes? you go with his backup plan. In Are You a Transhuman, 
FM, of course, answers the question of what to do if you're currently terminally ill but you want to live forever. That is not the end, he assures his readers. Sign up with a cryonic suspension organization. In case all else fails, you'll be suspended in liquid nitrogen for reanimation at a later date. If you stay on hold, you have a chance to eventually be treated. If you give up, you'll be gone forever. Which brings us back to Scottsdale. To this day, FM rests peacefully at Alcor, waiting for the technology he predicted to catch up with his desire for eternal life in the new and brilliant future. He's out there, behind that bulletproof glass, hanging out in one of those metal tubes. The Alcor tour guide begins to go into more detail about the cryogenically frozen patients in the bay you're standing in. He goes through the process of how patients are brought here immediately after death for suspension and liquid nitrogen, and says that if anyone wants to, they can stand in one of the sleeves that their patients go into before they're inserted in the tubes. He slides a keycard to let everyone into the facility, and shows off the 15-foot chrome behemoths that hold people's sisters and fathers and friends in a suspended cryonic limbo. He asks if anyone has any questions. Which one is FM 2030 buried in? Someone asks. He chuckles. This one right here, he says with a grin, knocking lightly on the chrome cylinder in the center of the room. Lots of people ask about him. He's made it clear with us that he wants to be the first one to be reanimated if we ever have the technology. When we get the technology. He corrects himself before showing everyone through the rest of the massive, chilly room, talking about the different ways people are preserved depending on if they want their brains or their whole bodies. He talks about nitrogen and the history of cryonics, about all of the hopes it represents for the future. He shoots you a polite smile and brings up how honored they are to house FM in their facility. The tour is concluded, and he ushers everyone politely into the conference room at the end of the tour, where the presentation will begin. This is where the tour attendants will listen politely to payment plans, funding opportunities, and the general capitalism of death. They discuss how Scottsdale is an optimal place for a person's cryonic rest, explaining that the low crime rate, low natural disaster rate, and favorable weather all keep the patients safe and well-preserved. They share the timeline of the organization, how it went from being a wacky idea in 1964 to a group of the world leaders of cryonics today. There's even a small shout-out to FM. This is also where they begin to go over death packages for Alcor, how the cycle of your membership dues would work how you need to adjust your life insurance, and how $220,000 will get you a full-body cryonic suspension in their facility. And you can save 100000 if you only freeze your brain. Chasing Immortality is hosted and recorded in the City of Angels by me, Tybee Diskin, and produced by Alice Flanders, with sound editing and music by Doug Borntrager. This episode was researched and written by Alex Rouse. And our show is executive produced by the immortal Travis McElroy. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe and tell your immortality-chasing cohorts to listen. Good luck, and happy hunting. Hi, everybody. It's me again, executive producer Travis McElroy. If you're enjoying the show, which I sure hope you are, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're an independent show, and we'd love to make more and more episodes and keep this show going forever. But we can't do that without your support. So please consider going to patreon.com slash chasing immortality and becoming a supporter today. We will be eternally grateful. <laughs>